I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. Hi, it's James Jokum, host of Web Comics Reviews and Interviews. Tonight, it's Rutger Hauer, Writer's Guide. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. On July 24th, 2019, Rutger Hauer passed. Definitely one of the better actors in Hollywood. His presence will be missed. At least it will be in a couple of years. Rutger Hauer has 172 acting credits over a 50-year career. If you're curious, that means he has about three and a half projects for every year he was actually acting. And uh, apparently that didn't stop. He still has about five in the shoot ready that were in post-production by the time he ended. This guy will definitely be missed. He's done quite a bit. He's gone anywhere from spy thriller to military drama. He's done comedies. He's done dramas. Even though he's most known for, well, B-rated science fiction and fantasy, the guy has covered quite a bit. I mean, when you start thinking of, when you start looking at various ways people have done their careers, you tend to notice that most actors tend to be in a reasonably narrow field, even though they tend to branch out. Tom Cruise does a lot of action adventure, but he does do comedies and dramas. Helen Mirren, yeah, we're still trying to figure out why she was doing Red too. But yeah, Grandma with a machine gun, scariest thing ever. But she's very well known for her dramas. Sally Field, more drama with a couple of comedies. Billy Crystal, mostly a comedy actor. So incredibly fine dramas, don't get me wrong. But, mostly a comedy actor. You know, you get people that tend to focus in on what they do. Well, Rutger Hauer wasn't one of those people. The guy basically did a little bit of everything. Part of my guy... Part of it was when I started looking at his IMDb listing, I started getting curious just to see exactly what all he's done. And it turns out that he's done quite a bit and a lot of those movies have had some serious impact. I mean, we start, you know, the inevitable top ten list, yeah, you start seeing a lot of interesting stuff pop up. Of course, you also see a lot of interesting not pop up. But, again, this isn't a guy who's done a couple of really big movies and he's been known for those two or three movies. This is a guy who, well, he's been all over the place. When I started debating, you know, my own personal top ten, it was sort of interesting to see some of the stuff that I didn't know he'd been in, and it was just like, <laughs> whoa. I mean, this is a guy who's been in Sin City. He's been on True Blood. Yeah, the HBO vampire drama. He's done voice work for Kingdom Hearts. This isn't to say he's done, I mean, he's, done a lot of drama, especially military stuff. Um, it was just like, like I said, totally awesome to see what this guy's done. 
And I thought it would be interesting to go through some of his movies just because, or some of TV stuff as well, just to see what can be gleaned from it from a writer's perspective, or in some case, an artist's perspective. Because trust me, there's some incredible visually stunning movies out there. I mean, yeah, he's best known for movies like, you know, Hobo with a Gun, but, or sorry, Hobo with a Shotgun, but when it comes down to it, this is a guy who. Trust me, there's just no way you're going to be able to watch most of the stuff he's done in a lifetime. And that's even if you gave it a concerted effort. I mean, theoretically you could. Don't get me wrong. But the likelihood of you being able to accomplish that particular mission isn't as likely as you think it would be. And that's even lying for stuff that's no longer in print, that sort of thing. Nonetheless... I mean, it's just, this guy's done so much. At three and a half projects a year, it's just, you, I honestly think that when it comes down to it, Death decided to give the guy a break. You know how most people claim they're not going to sleep until they're dead? Yeah, that's no longer a problem. And yeah, I hate joking about Death, but it's just, when you start seeing everything that this guy's done and all the effort he's put into what he's done, and realize that anytime he shows up for any particular role... He steals the show nine times out of ten. Trust me, if you see him, you know you've dealt with Rutger Hauer. He's one of those loud type of actors. He does seem to disappear into roles, but they're loud roles. So, I mean, it was a serious debate on whether or not to do Blade Runner. And if you've never seen him and his Roy Batty in Blade Runner, yeah, you're missing some serious stuff. I mean... Blade Runner is one of those movies that legitimize science fiction. It it not only looks gorgeous, and yeah, we'll be talking a lot about the appearance, but it's just one of those movies that basically show that you could do sci-fi and Shakespeare at the same time. I mean, it's just, this guy is an incredible actor and he will be missed. There's absolutely no question of that. Yeah, he didn't get the accolades he deserved. I mean, he's got like 13 wins, another five nominations, and he's got a Golden Globe. You know, it's just, there's no question that's just not enough to celebrate this guy's life. But I think the work of he's leaving behind his legacy is definitely going to be one of the more interesting ones to look at in the future. So if you can watch any of this stuff, yeah, definitely do so. Even the bad stuff. This is a guy who even the incredibly worst movies are still worth watching. Just because he had a little bit of fun with it. There's some quirkiness to it. And yeah, we'll be looking at some of his worst movies here in a bit. When I, One of the problems I had was, like you said, he's done so much that when I wanted to boil it down to like 10 movies or so, it was not exactly the world's easiest thing to do. So, he's got a lot of bad, he's got a lot of good, and he's got a lot of ugly. Don't get me wrong. But he's also got a lot of pure awesome. And it's that stuff that you need to start looking for. If you're serious about writing and you don't have a lot of Rutger Hauer movies in your, you know, memory vault, yeah, you seriously have to debate what your career you're going after. His first American movie, and yeah, he's got a couple of movies, a lot of stuff that's in Dutch and German, but his first American movie was The Osterman Weekend. Essentially, it was your standard CIA thriller. In essence, a CIA agent decides he wants to figure out a way to turn three KGB agents over, make them into assets for the CIA, and decides to take advantage of 
a broadcast interviewer by the name of Tanner, Riker Howard's character, and then basically confront them with what they've been doing and give them a choice of either, well, convert or die. Unfortunately, the weekend decides to have all these guys over. They bring their wives, and Tanner has his wife, child, and his dog there. By the end of the weekend, everybody's ticked off. It doesn't quite work the way he wanted it to. And the CIA agent is forced to, well, go after the agency tried to turn their wives. And he also ends up kidnapping Tanner's family, including the dog. Tanner has to figure out a way to get them back. And he does do something that needs to be copied sometime. Uh, basically, the way he ends up doing it is not only does he figure out there ends up being two CIA agents he has to deal with. The first one is relatively easy, you know, well-known location, just send somebody out, good to go. The other one he actually has to triangulate, figure out where the guy is, and ends up having to take care of him himself. However, in order to do so, he needs some sort of ruse in order to keep the guy busy, and that way he can not only track him down a little bit easier, but also keep him busy while he's, well, tracking him down. So... He ends up having a, a broadcast interview with the guy. And of course, while he's doing the interview, you'll love this one. While he's doing the interview, he tracks down and kills the guy, rescues his family, and takes them home. And you're basically going, wait, what? Yeah, what he ends up doing is he pre-records his questions. And his faces are not just enough that it gives the other guy enough time to respond to them. In other words, it basically sounds like, well, Tanner is still giving the interview and is actually doing a pretty good job of it when in actuality, he's just outside the guy's cabin. So, yeah, it's understandable that there's a big takeaway from the movie and that's that, well, when the movie came out, it was pretty much ravaged by the critics. Essentially, there was an incredible number of plot holes. The problem, of course, is that if you're doing a CIA thriller, you need to have the plotting as tight as you possibly can. You need to have it so tight that if you poured water into it, none of it would go out. You know what I mean? The problem is, is that there were a huge number of plot holes within the Osterman weekend. Great movie. Sort of interesting to watch. Don't get me wrong. But, once you actually start tracking down the plot holes, it sort of ruins the movie. So... You know, the takeaway here is that if you're doing a CIA thriller, you need to keep the shit tight. And, of course, if you're going to set up a plot twist, have some serious fun with it. I mean, straight up. That bit with the microphone, where he's basically acting like he's interviewing the guy even as he's tracking him down. Yeah, that's just a really cool little plot twist in there. On the other hand, you've got a movie called Lady Hawk. Invariably, Lady Hawk causes two reactions. The first is, oh my gosh, can I forget that movie, music ever? Yeah, it was a medieval fantasy with a prog rock soundtrack. If you don't know what prog rock is, yeah, that's one of the bad things about the 80s, all I'm going to say there. But, the movie itself is pure gold. I mean... It's your standard medieval fantasy where you basically have a curse you have to deal with and you have to deal with it in a really weird way. You know. And they do it in a really nice inventive fashion. Your basic setup is that, well, 20 years prior, 
you had a young knight fall in love with the lady of the castle. And they had this really cool little romance going along. Unfortunately, a beginning priest also fell in love with the lady. And, well, when he found out that the knight was in love with her, he threw a tantrum tantrum that involved both of them being cursed. The young knight was, well, the basic idea of the curse was to keep the two of them not only apart, but also keep them together. In other words, there was absolutely no way they would be able to enjoy each other's company, even though they'd be linked together pretty much forever. What ended up happening was that Navarre, the knight, during the night he was turned into a wolf. During the day, Isabeau, the lady, was turned into a hawk. Yeah, lady hawk of the title, clever, yeah, yeah. But, as time goes on, the two of them tend to start taking on the personality traits of their respective animals. Just as Navarre becomes much more gruff, much more aggressive, and more feral, at the same time, you got Isabeau is becoming more flighty, more easily agitated, and generally just a little bit, yeah, a little bit birdish. Meanwhile, you've sort of got this monk off in the way in the background who's more or less keep trying to keep track of the two and patching them up as needed and so on and so forth because Navarre decided to stay around the area where the young priest and he's now a bishop and he, the bishop is doing all sorts of bad stuff but Navarre sort of keeps him in check for the most part. Well, into this mix you get one Philippe Gaston, a.k.a. The Mouse. And The Mouse is a really fun character played by a very young Matthew Broderick. In fact, it's one of his first roles. I think he was like maybe 18 at the time, but don't quote me on that. At any rate, so into this, you come, you Gaston, who, well, becomes friends of both of them and ends up being essentially a messenger service between the two. And, of course, he tends to punch up the messages and basically he's able to keep the romance alive between the two, which is sort of impressive because the romance was already pretty much going hard. So if I say, Navarre sort of gets jealous of Gaston at one point because, well, he's having to be, he's able to share some time with Isabeau. And Isabeau, of course, is really happy to have Gaston because it's a way to contact Navarre. At one point, during a transformation phase, they get a little bit of lucky and Navarre is able to see Isabeau in her human form for just a moment. At the same time, Gaston has had to actually rescue the wolf and ends up with a lot of claw marks, which of course earns him a lot of respect in the eyes of Navarre. Yeah, like you said, getting back to the curse. Yeah, the basic problem is that in order to break the curse, they have to be together in their human forms at the same time. And for this to happen, that means you have to have a situation where night is in the middle of day. Suffice to say, you know, the standard curse silliness. In and of itself, the curse is sort of fun to see how they handle it. You know, because not only is there some really cool stuff going on with the curse in terms of just how bloody evil it is, but you've also got there's having some long-term effects in there as well. And as the moment approaches, if they have a possibility to actually 
get the curse over, they're becoming their pers- their animal traits are becoming stronger. So that little bit of character development is all sorts of fun to watch. You've also got that religion is treated as a double-edged sword in this movie, which is also sort of neat because generally when you have a religion in the movie, it's generally tend to be treated as a really cool thing or the worst thing ever. In this case, you've got the best of both worlds because you've got the bishop who's obviously, well, evil versus imperious who's on the side of good. On top of that, Gaston himself seems to have a lot of conversations, albeit one-sided, with the God above. So, yeah, if you can see this movie and you like a fairy tale that has a really cool ending, definitely need to watch this movie. It's just, yeah, I cannot recommend this movie enough. Keeping up with medieval times, you might also want to catch Flesh and Blood. In Flesh and Blood, well, Generally speaking, when you start looking at your standard medieval movie, you tend to basically, it's a Ren Faire, let's get real. You know, you've got your King Arthur and his knights, or Robin Hood, or what have you, but they tend to gloss over a lot of the nasty stuff that happened in the medieval era, you know? You don't see a lot of the plagues, you don't see a lot of the mercenaries killing each other, you don't see a lot of the gruesome battles... Even when you do see battles in most movies, it's relatively clean. You know, you've got the guys in armor that are basically hitting each other with the swords. And you, yeah, you see blood, but you don't see anything past it. You don't get to see broken limbs. You don't get to see people chopped off at the leg. You don't see the gruesomeness that was medieval battle. And it's sort of cool that you actually get to see it in this movie. You know, this is arguably one of the bloodiest... They have a bloodiest battle ever. And it's just like awesome because you just don't see that stuff. On top of that, you also get to see a lot of the plague. In fact, the plague in the story actually ends up being one of the cooler plot twists I've ever seen in the movie. Um, In it, Rutger Hauer is in charge of a mercenary outfit and he ends up saying, screw it, we're tired of having to deal with all these problems that the Lord's giving us, you know, we're just not being paid enough, and so we're going to take over his castle. Suffice to say, not only do they take over the castle, but they pretty much kill everybody in it except for the Lord's daughter, who Martin, Riker Howard's character, basically takes for himself, and he's basically romancing her. She, of course, accepts the romance until she can figure out some way to deal with this guy. Well, at one point in time, the castle itself was attacked by a different force, and even though it's easily repelled, one of the things that the other force does is they start throwing in chopped up uh, dog carcass into the place. Turns out that the dog carcass has a little bit of the local plague. During the siege, the daughter throws, uh, throws up part of the dog carcass into the well. It turns out it's the communal well that everybody's drinking from. Yeah, she starts drinking a lot of wine after. But, over the next couple of days, well, it's not pretty. Especially when everybody starts realizing they've got a plague, they've got to figure out a way to deal with the plague. And pretty much everybody dies. Except, of course, for the daughter. So, it's just... Like you said, one of the things you don't see a whole lot in the medieval movies is they don't tend to deal with the 
actual historical issues that were going on at the time. You know, you'll see the magic fairy stuff, you'll see the big heroes, you'll see the historical figures, so on and so forth, but you tend to askew a lot of the more interesting problems. And as writers, we need to every so often go into those historical issues and have a little bit of fun with them. Obviously, in this case, we're talking about the plague and it's having a really nasty effect on people. So, we as writers have to keep in mind that, you know, history doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's a lot of other stuff going on at the time that we tend to gloss over and tend to ignore. And sometimes we need to avoid doing that because there's some really cool stuff that is the details. And we start doing the world building and that sort of thing. We need to allow that there's some really nasty evil stuff out there. I don't care if you're doing a horror movie or if you're doing, um, you know, a kid's comic. Occasionally, you need to let that bad stuff happen and just explore what happens when that bad stuff does take over. So, definitely keep that in mind. Another fun little movie is Blind Fury, and this was actually a fun one. Basically, Rutger Howard gets to play the part of one Nick Parker, who happens to be a blind swordsman. Yeah, if you've heard this plot before, yeah, it's taken directly off the Zadoichi Japanese movies and shows. I mean, it's a pretty much a direct rip-off on purpose. That is, that was the entire point. Let's have some fun with Zadoichi, who was a, known as the Blind Swordsman. Yeah, think about that for a sec. No nifty double radar sense type thing going on. Just pure... Yeah, skill. And he ends up having to rescue a kid. The fun part is, is they keep... Not only did Rutger Howard tend to... I mean, he actually went and found a person who practiced judo who was blind to learn how to basically act blind. He then also went into swordsmanship in order to, well, be convincing. And it pays off. It's sort of fun to see the interaction because you've got all this stuff going on because the guy's blind and he doesn't understand it. And it's just fun to see his fearlessness because of that blindness and how he interacts with the world around him. And, of course, he ends up doing a lot of stuff that's just like, you know, he stabs somebody at random, gets questioned, hey, how'd you know that guy was there? And I just guessed, you know? It's a little bit serious, it's a lot of comedy, and it's just one of those movies that you have to see to appreciate. Because, see, when you, it, one of the cool things about it, like to point out, is that the guy's blind, which is a major plot point all over the place. And... One of the things you tend to forget when you start doing a person with a handicap is that for some bizarre reason, we as comic book writers tend to like over, you know, compensating for people with handicaps. Instead of letting that person's handicap actually get into the story, we tend to do things like rocket-powered wheelchairs or, you know, crutches or a scrim of sticks, you know? We tend to have characters who are blind but also have radar vision. He, you know, or they can see through other people's eyes using telepathy, or basically they have some sort of silly way of compensating for their handicap. It was sort of fun to see a story where, yeah, the guy was able to do some incredible things because of his handicap, in order to take advantage of it, you know, the other senses being sharpened and all that. But at the same time, it was fun to see a person with a handicap actually being, get this, handicapped. So, again, really silly movie based on a silly premise, but 
definitely worth watching just because it's fun to watch this blind guy actually be. Get this, blind. So, definitely worth watching. And if you don't mind a couple of laughs here and there, hey, you're going to get those in there as well. Admittedly, it does have a kinney, but, you know, a prepubescent kid that basically talks way too much. But, you know, overall, it's a really fun little movie. If you can see it, definitely track it down. I bet you didn't think I was going to do a sports movie. Because guess what? I'm doing a sports movie. Sort of. Another movie you need to watch is Blood of Heroes. And you're going to love this one. Basically, you've got a post-apocalyptic future where everything is basically gone to pot. You know? You've got a little bit of technology running around, but generally speaking, it's been nuked all the way back to the medieval era. And well, probably a little bit further than that. However, people have found solace in a really cool sport called jugging. Yeah, you basically have two teams of five. No, this is not basketball. Basketball does not get this brutal. Really basic situation is you've got two people who wrestle for the skull of a dog, grab that skull of a dog, and then have to make it to the goal. Where they basically take the skull and place it on a spike. Most points wins. Yeah, but you're not going to see a whole lot of points. It scored like it scores like soccer. So you got the other four people on the team are trying to protect you while at the same time prevent the other person's runner from one stealing the skull and b making it to the applicable goal. First off, what's really scary is that if you think Quidditch players in real life are bad. Yeah, jugging players in, exist in real life too. And I've got to track down some footage of that. But, what's sort of really fun with it is that you've got a sports story set in a post-apocalyptic era. For a lot of us comic book people, this is just totally, just totally off the wall awesome. I mean, seriously. I've seen some interesting ways of doing sports movies, but it's usually... You know, we're going to do all kids. We're going to do, we're going to bring a dog in who can play. Or we've got this guy who's like a really big expert, but he can't get it together, so he's been demoted a couple of leagues down. Or you've got the guy who's going on, you know, you, you've got your basic setups. To see a sports movie in a post apocalyptic era is just all sorts of cool. On top of that, the movie itself actually is pretty good in and of itself. I mean, straight up, I definitely recommend this. You've got Rutger Hauer is chewing up the scenery left and right. I mean, this guy had to go on a diet afterwards. He chewed up so much scenery. But he's also got some really cool conversations, some really philosophical pieces. And Blood of Heroes, a.k.a. Slewed of a Jugger. Yeah, J-U-G-G-E-R. Not Jogger, Jugger. It's just a really fun little movie, especially if you don't expect it. Like I said, it's a post-apocalyptic sports movie. How can you possibly go wrong? And they don't. Alright, so... Then, of course, you have a movie like Wedlock. Alright, basic premise here is pretty simple, and I'm not going to get too much into the movie. But, you basically have a situation where people are sent to jail, and when they're sent to jail, well, they put a collar around the person's neck. You're told that, you know, you get more than a couple hundred feet away from this person. I think you actually use a hundred feet in the movie, but there's no way it's just a hundred feet. Trust me on this. 
But you're told that if you get past a certain distance away from the person, well, both callers go off. Just to make this a little bit more interesting, nobody's told who the paired caller is with. So, you've got a situation where you can't escape from jail until you figure out exactly who the person you're paired with is. I still want to throw in a hilarity in Susan in this because it does. It really does. They have some serious fun with the concept. First off, he's able to figure Richard Howard is able to figure out who the woman he's tied with is. It's not always a woman. Sometimes it's another guy. Usually it's another guy. But in this case, it happened to be a woman. So they're able to throw in a little bit of a romantic subplot. But the fun part of the movie is that, well, every so often the two of them start getting further and further apart from each other. I mean, at one point in time, she's actually on a bus and doesn't get off when she's supposed to. So, yeah, you start hearing a little beep, 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 beep of the necklace and you know things are about to go boom. So, yeah, it's just... They're able to take a relatively silly plot concept. In this case, you've got you're paired with somebody with a explosive collar, and you can only go so far away from that person. And they actually tend to have an actual serious movie, even allowing for that, you know. But that part's not the fun, not from a writer's perspective. Because let's get real, we'll always find ways of making a movie be whatever kind of. Or We'll always make our scripts be exactly the kind of genre we want them to be. If we want them to be silly, we make them silly. If we want them to be serious, they'll be serious. It's just fun that you've got this really cool running joke that you know if things go south, both people are going to die. And they're going to die... Okay, at least they're going to die painlessly, and it's going to be quick. But it's sort of fun to watch them get tortured because of this. And yeah, eventually they do get rid of the collars. Like, that's, you know, does sitch, right? But the bottom line here is that they tend to have a lot of fun building up the suspense on whether or not the collar is going to go off, putting them in situations where, yeah, you know that collar is going to go off. Yeah, this is definitely overusing Chekhov's collar. But they have a lot of fun with it, and it works. And for that alone, the movie's worth watching and figuring out how to explore and put that into other media. You know? You've... Just straight up, if you have a situation where you've got two characters and you want them to bond, yeah, apparently putting him in two explosive colors tends to work. Go figure. I guess I need one most dangerous game movie at some point in time. So, hey. Surviving the Game it is. Yeah, actually, that's the name of the movie, Surviving the Game. Rector Howard gets to play a businessman who goes in, you know, everybody pays a certain amount, they track down a homeless person, give the person incentive to run and stay alive while they track down the guy. And pretty much what you expect to happen in an MDG movie happens. You know, everybody pretty much dies, the prey gets away, prey gets the money and has a relatively happy life afterwards. It's just straight up, that the MDG-type movies are sort of fun to do, especially if you tend to do like comics. I mean, it's a relatively simple concept. You've got a group of people hunting a particular person, and you get to sort of show some of the foibles of society. You know, you've got rich guys with way too much money that need to get a life, and you've got people that are willing to do pretty much anything for a couple of bucks. 
So, I can't, it's just one of those movies that, more of an obligatory here, that I'm trying to show off that Roger Howard do a lot of weirdness, but the MDG type movies are sort of fun to do just from the sake of, if you want to do one that basically goes after and shows the problems of society in terms of the, the rich eating the poor, it's a really great little fun thing to play around with every so often. And in this case, they do have a little bit of fun with it. It is sort of fun to watch Ice-T run for his life. Okay, it's a lot of fun to watch Ice-T run for his life. He's a nice, normally a cool, collected person, right? Yeah. And then you put him, take him out of his urban environment, put him into the woods, and you get to see just how smart he really is. So, there's that as well. It's pretty much the ultimate fish-out-of-water situation. Outside of taking an actual fish out of actual water. But it's just sort of fun to watch. And it's a lightweight movie. And like you said, it's sort of fun to do a rich eating the poor type of story every so often. So it's definitely worth watching just for that alone. Then, of course, you've got movies like, oh, Cross Worlds. Basic setup. You've got Howard gets to play a, well, a mage who's... With the ability to cross worlds. He needs to find an apprentice. And teach this person how to do it himself. And meanwhile they've got to defeat a villain. You know. Lots of cliches. Lots of really common tropes. That sort of thing is what you're expecting right? No. See generally speaking. When you've got the master apprentice situation. The apprentice does a lot of the heavy lifting. In this case. That's not exactly the situation. You've got. Howard gets to actually go through and actually be a master and actually able to show exactly what he's capable of doing, which is all sorts of fun. And yeah, you've got the apprentice who's in a situation where he does have to end up vanquishing the villain, but it's just sort of really cool to see a situation where you've got a master-apprentice situation where they're actually cooperating and actually working together and actually, get this, sharing the kill, so to speak. So... It's just, you've got a little bit of philosophy in there, granted. But overall, for what essentially is a lightweight TV movie, there's a lot of really fun takeaway here. You know, you've got the fact that you've got a consistent magic system, which in and of itself is sort of fun. A lot of TV movies tend to have magic as this end-all, be-all, doisex machina that pretty much does whatever you want it to do. It's nice to see a magic system where that's not always going to be the case, where you actually have to, you know, allow for other situations before you can cast a spell that, and you can actually run out of energy and that sort of thing. You just don't see a magic system that's actually nice and consistent. And again, you've got sort of an ensemble cast between the Master of the Apprentice and the Apprentice's girlfriend is along for the ride. On top of that, you've got a villain who's actually having fun being a villain. I really love movies that, where the villain gets to do that because, you know, I hate these ultra-serious villains who take themselves way too seriously. I'm doing this for the good of mankind type of guys. No, this guy's just like, screw it. Why do you think, you know, he actually at one point asks A.T., Howard's character, oh yeah, why do you think I'm evil? Well, there is a little detail that you, you know, captured, you know, went and destroyed the universe, enslaved his people, and... Yeah, I think you're definitely qualified as evil. So, it's just all sorts of fun to see somebody actually be evil just for the sake of being evil. I guess 
you know, you get tired of seeing all these evil guys that are, have like 37 issues and, you know, one good counseling session would bang it out. So it's nice to see somebody being evil just to be evil. And like I said, it's got a really nice consistency uh, magic system. And it's also got some really cool character interactions. And you actually see more of an ensemble situation rather than just like, you know, power up the apprentice and send them in. That, again, gets a little bit boring. It's nice to see the old guy get his own wax in. You know what I mean? And then I had to include this one because I saw it on the listing and I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, this is a guy who's done Hobo with a shotgun. He's done Sin City. You know, Batman Begins. He's done some incredible war movies where he used to play Nazis and where he used to play Nazi killers. And all these, you know, all the World War II movies are absolutely serious. And then there's Lex. L-E-X-X, and yeah, he only goes on one show, but jeez, we talk about a balls-to-the-wall type of show. I mean, it's just, when you start looking at Lex, there's so much weirdness going on, and you get to see all the, just how dark the world is, and then they basically kill off one universe, send everybody to another universe, and you get to see all the weirdness that happens in our universe, so to speak. And it's just... Yeah, Lex is one of those shows that you have to see to believe. For those of you who like doing a little bit more absurdist science fiction, it's definitely... If you've not seen Lex in your lifetime, you need to track it down and do so immediately. And watch it from beginning to end and watch all the little miniseries type of stuff first. And if you're a visual artist, oh, you're going to love this show. Oh, you're going to so Yeah, you've got a big, giant dragonfly as the spaceship to begin with. You've got all these weird robots running around. You've got, at one point, the bad, the villain becomes a supersized version of herself. Yeah, this is not a show that if you're trying to figure out nice and consistent, this is not the show for you. But, which is sort of weird because the show is almost 100% consistent. That is, when little things happen, there's going to be consequences later on. You know, they start balls rolling and eventually these balls snowball and do weird things later on. And it's just awesome to see all this weirdness in this one show. And if you can see Lex just once in your life, yeah, just go through a run-through of the entire series. Trust me. Visually, it's incredible. Writing is incredible awesome. It's just, there's a lot of weirdness in this show. I cannot, if you were to take every episode of Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and I mean, not just the original versions, but all their incarnations afterwards, and heck, let's throw some creep show in there too. Yeah. This show is weird. But you need to watch it. Okay? And I know there's a movie I'm forgetting. Oh yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah. If you're into comics and you're into sci-fi in general, and you've not seen any of the versions of Blade Runner, and I'm not include, I'm not looking at the Blade Runner 2049 with Ryan Gosling. No. That does not count. If your big thing is that you've, you're going to tell me that you've watched Blade Runner and you've only watched the Ryan Gosling version, yeah, don't even waste your time. Okay? Straight up. If that's the only re- version of Blade Runner you've ever seen, do not talk to me about Blade Runner. 
Not unless you've seen at least three versions of the original. And there's like five, six, or seven versions depending on who you ask. Also depending on how you count the cuts, so on and so forth. But, straight up, you need to see Blade Runner. If you're into manga, if you're into cyberpunk, if you're into sci-fi in general and you've not seen Blade Runner, you need to question your very existence. Okay? Everything you see in cyberpunk... Yeah, there was cyberpunk before Blade Runner, but let's get bloody real here. Blade Runner is the movie that defines cyberpunk. By any measure. It's got everything you expect to see in the, in the genre. You've got beautiful women with weird agendas. You've got robots. You've got the hard-boiled detectives. You know, you've got cybernetics and you've got some really weird comp- computational stuff goes and you definitely have the overpowerful, you know, corporations that are just plain evil. So, it's just straight up. If you've not seen Blade Runner, I cannot recommend this movie enough. And it's really hard-pressed between what's more impressive, the art or the writing or the character development, you know? And if you really watch for some of the clues uh, about Deckard's little situation, yeah, Deckard has a little situation. But that's not important. Honest. All I'm going to say is that you need to track down as many copies of Blade Runner as you possibly can and just simply have fun watching the movie over and over and over again. I mean, there's really cool movies and then there's, oh my gosh, type movies. You have to understand that in the 80s, as soon as Blade Runner came out, Every Japanese manga basically had their version of cyberpunk instantly. I mean, it's just there's something really cool about the genre, and when you start seeing what what they did with it in Blade Runner, how that evolved into a lot of the different versions of cyberpunk you see, it's just it'll blow your mind. I mean, it really will. You'll be going, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've seen these elements here, there, and everywhere," and this is pretty much where they came from. So. On top of that, if you need inspiration, it's really hard not to watch the movie and get inspired and try something weird. And on top of that, it just has a lot of really applicability to a lot of other stuff. You know? You've seen the robot that thinks it's a, a real robot and finds out the hard way that it's, well, not? Yeah, okay, they did that a couple of times in The Outer Limits. But when they do it in, in Blade Runner, it's just all sorts of cool. On top of that, it hits a point where you're not 100% of where all the robots are. Yeah, you think you know on the first viewing or two, but trust me, unless you really, really pay attention, you're not going to catch them all. This is not a Pokemon situation. It's just you're not going to catch all the robots. And yeah, I know they're Nexus models, but, you know, well, let's get real. There's sort of a weird combination of robot and clone. But... You're not going to know where every robot is. On top of that, the visual style is there. You get to see some really interesting linguistic tricks that you haven't seen since Tolkien. And overall, this is a movie that was that you just that was somebody put together. And when they started putting it together, it was hey, let's add a little bit of extra. Hey, let's have some fun. Let's have some geishas that are swallowing ad, you know, swallowing drugs in ads. And let's just have some serious fun with it. You've got technology all the way from the 30s all the way to the, well, 2020s. 
in there. And it's just sort of fun to see what all this stuff does when it's put together. Straight up, I can, this is one of those movies that I just simply cannot recommend enough. So, overall, yeah, I know it's sort of look, weird looking at movies in terms of inspiration for for comic books. But let's get real. We've seen all these people that do all these comic books and made them into movies, so let's, hey, let's reverse the process. Let's look at all these movies and see what they would look like as comics and let's have a little bit of fun with it and see, explore and see what they can give us. And I hope this has been incredibly useful to you. If it has been, please support the podcast over at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. And you're going to be finding a lot of interesting stuff there. You're going to find show notes. You're going to find some extra bonuses. You're going to see some bonus uh, podcasts that are just like tips and tricks type of stuff. If I get brave enough, you may actually see blooper reel there someday. But please support me at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. Thank you, and I hope to talk to you later.